Amen. Well, take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and turn with me to Psalm 32. Psalm 32. As we begin this morning, just a little three-part series on songs of joy. We've been walking through the Psalms for quite some time, but uh, we want to take Psalm 32, 33, and 34 and talk about the joy that we find in Jesus Christ. And as you're turning there, let me just say again, if you're visiting today, would you please take some time and give us some information about yourself? This is in front of you there, and you can fill it out and put it in the offering plate at the back. Uh, We would love to have a record of your visit, and you've been doing so good at this. Please continue. We love to pray for you, specifically by name. So if you would fill this out, keep this confidential between our pastors, uh, but we do get together every Monday morning. We pray every, for every one of these and we divide it up against, among the staff and we continue to pray for you. So please let us know how we can do that. Well, over the last nine months as we have walked through the book of Psalms, I have become convinced of something that I wasn't convinced of before. It's not that I was hesitant to believe it. It's that I honestly hadn't thought about it before. There's something that the Lord has revealed to me that I have never seen before, and I've seen it as we've walked through the Psalms. Now, what I'm going to say might be surprising to those of you who have been with us in our series through the Psalms, because many of you were gracious enough and patient enough and kind enough to go with us through the Psalms of Lament. Some uh, really dark Psalms, uh, helpful for us, I believe, to know that we have the freedom to tell the Lord how we're really doing and he meets us in that place. But in the midst of all of those, I've been convinced of something that I've never thought of before. And it is simply this. I am convinced that when you get to heaven and you see Jesus face to face, the thing that might surprise you the most is that Jesus will be the happiest person you have ever come in contact with in your life. I'm absolutely convinced you'll be shocked by the utter happiness and joy of Jesus Christ. And I begin to think about this in Psalm 45 when the psalmist says, I have been anointed with the oil of gladness above my companions. Meaning the psalmist says, I'm happier than anybody because God has put a gladness upon me and it's more gladness than any of my companions have. And then you open up and read the book of Hebrews, which Lord willing, we're gonna walk through verse by verse next year. And then you see that that verse was a prophecy about Jesus Christ. That in Hebrews 1, it says, it was said of Jesus that he has been anointed with the oil of gladness above his companions, meaning this, there is no one happier than Jesus Christ. There is no one with more gladness, no one with more joy than Jesus. Now, let me be clear. There are those who have rejected Jesus Christ. They reject the offer of eternal life, and in so doing, what they're really doing is rejecting the joy that only our creator can give to us. They have rejected the life, the truth, the way that Christ offers us, and those who die, having rejected Jesus Christ, will experience his righteous wrath and judgment because they have chosen to reject him. But to those who have received him, John chapter 1, and believed in his name, and have not rebelled against him, but have given their life to Christ. Not just they said a prayer when they were five, but they're living a life of trusting Jesus and they're following him to those, at the moment they come to Christ, they will begin to taste of the joy of Jesus. And then what will happen is that in all of eternity, they will experience unceasing and ever increasing joy. What I mean by that is it will be unceasing, it will never stop, and ever-increasing, meaning throughout all of eternity, we're going to learn more things about the Lord, and every time we do, our joy and gladness is going to increase. 
the greatest joy that you've ever experienced on this earth is just a taste of the joy you experience in an increasing manner for all of eternity. As a matter of fact, as we've been walking through our Advent devotional readings, uh, I didn't plan this. I did pick every scripture specifically for you to read, but I didn't think about it until this week. Six Advent readings this week, five of the six talk about the joy and the delight of, and gladness that can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the point of Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is a psalm of joy and it is about the joy of forgiveness. The joy that only comes to those who have had their sins covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And those who even as believers have chosen not to hide their sin and to try to cover it up themselves. But those have believers who have walked in open and honesty with others and with God about their sin. Because it is possible for us having to receive Christ to then continue in some ways to hide and try to cover our own sin. But David is giving us his own testimony of what has happened in his life and the difference between when he tried to hide his sin and then when he got real with God and others and confessed it and the joy that he experienced in being right with God. So if you're there at Psalm 32, say amen. And listen here as I read. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now here David begins to give his testimony. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, here's the application for us. Let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach you. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Let me say that again. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all of you who are upright in heart. Now, I say to you often, one of the most important things to do as you're reading the text is to think about the tone of the text. And the tone of Psalm 32 is that of utter, absolute joy. It begins with joy, it ends with joy. And in that first little phrase there, it says, blessed is the one. It starts with an exclamation of joy. Now, when we think of the word blessed, it seems like a religious word to us, and we think about it and maybe in terms of spiritual well-being. But the reality is, if we needed to translate this Hebrew word into English, the closest word we would have is the word happy. It really does refer to a deeply rooted happiness, the kind of happiness that cannot be found in anything external it is a happiness that must be found in something internal. It is something that God places inside of us. And because it's inside of us and it's deep and it's brought to us by the Lord, it has the ability to surpass all of our sorrow and all of our difficulty. 
It doesn't mean that we will not have sorrow and suffering and difficulty in this life. We absolutely will. Every one of us, even those who know the Lord. But the reality is it is possible for us to have a kind of joy and gladness that is deeper than all of those things we experience. You say, well, what is this joy that they're rejoicing in? What is the cause of this? Well, it's there. It is the joy of the one whose sins are forgiven. Their transgression is forgiven. Their sin is covered. Their iniquity is not counted to them. Psalm 32 really reminds me of Luke 15. In Luke 15, Jesus gives three parables. There's the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, and the parable of the lost son. And all three of them follow the exact same pattern. There's something that's lost, there's something that's found, and then there's a party. The lady loses a coin. She finds it. She calls all of her friends and they throw a party. A man loses a sheep. He finds it. He calls all of his friends and he has a party. And a man loses a son. And when he comes home, he gathers everyone around and he kills the fatted calf and he gets the musicians ready and they have a party. Why? Because there's a certain joy that is only experienced by those who know what it's like to be found by the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the joy of forgiveness and being right with God. And the simple point of Psalm 32 is this. The more that you know of God's forgiveness, the more you will know of God's gladness. The more that you know and even experience on a regular basis the confession of sin, which is painful and scary and difficult, but if you're willing to humble yourself and confess your sin for the first time as a new believer, or for the millionth time as a believer, continue to confess your sin, what happens is as we do that, we experience more of the gladness of the Lord. There is a direct connection between your joy and gladness and the forgiveness that you experience from the Lord Jesus Christ. So what the psalmist does is he has this big exclamation of joy and then he gives us his testimony. He says, Here, here's how I know this. Based not only on the authority of scripture of my own life, here's what happened when I hid my sin and when I confessed, and then he ends with a plea, an exhortation. He says, this is true of me, me and it's also true of you. So I'm pleading with you to do the right thing. Listen, for the sake of your joy, because the God who created you loves you. And it's his desire that you experience the fullness of everything he has for you. It is God's desire that you come to know the joy that he created you to have. So in David's uh, testimony of what had happened in his life, I want you to see two, two truths this morning. I want to encourage you to write these down if you can. The first one is this. Your sin is worse than you think. That's the first truth. Your sin is worse than you think. You say, well, pastor, I, this is a sermon on gladness. Well, yes, we have to get the bad news before we get the good news. And the bad news is this. You're much worse than you think you are. And your sin is a much bigger problem than you think it is. Your sin is worse than you think. Now, we know that because in those first two verses, look there carefully. If you mark in your Bibles, let me give you some words here. David uses the three primary words for sin used in the Old Testament. He doesn't just use one, he uses three. Because all three of them communicate something more about the depth of our sin. He says, our transgression in verse one, our sin in verse one, and then in verse two, our iniquity. Transgression, sin, and iniquity. All of these different words to refer to the kind of sin that is in our life. The first one there is transgression. Transgression means rebellion and betrayal. So it really means that all of us, like Adam and Eve, 
have at some point taken our puny little fist and shaken it in the hand of God and say, God, we don't care what you say. We want to do our own thing. This is what we do with the law of God. God has set forth a law. We break the law. And because we've broken the law, we have transgression. But it's often used as a relational word to refer to betrayal of trust. So God created us to know him and wanted to make a covenant with us. But what we've we done, we have broken trust by rejecting him and his authority over our lives. We thought that we could do it ourselves and we thought that we would find more joy in the things of the world. So we've rejected the promises of God and the result of that is transgression. But the next word he uses there is sin. That word sin means failure. It means to miss the mark. As a matter of fact, I, I saw something I'd never seen this week as I was doing a little study on that word. In Judges 20, 16, it says that the tribe of Benjamin had a group of men that were experts with the slingshot. They were so good that they could sling the, the, the stone and hit a hair on someone's head. Now, if they were talking about me, that'd be unbelievably impressive. But it says this. It says, when they sling the stone, they can hit a hair, and it says this, and they never sin, meaning they never miss the mark. They nail it every time. They're so good, they nail it every time. Now, when you take that word and apply it to us and our relationship with God, the reality is we never hit it. God has set a mark, but all of us, Romans 3, 23, have fallen short of the glory of God. God said, I created you to live for me, for Christ to be the center of your life, and nothing will ever be right. But none of us, even those who make the greatest attempt without Christ, will ever meet the mark of living fully for the glory of God. We have sinned. We have missed the mark. Even if we do aim, which most of us don't aim for it, we miss the mark. He says we have transgression and sin, but look what he says next. We also have iniquity. Now, iniquity is, is almost deeper. It's a type of utter corruption that is inside of us. That because we aren't sinners because we sinned, we sin because we're sinners. At our very core, we're born in sin, Ephesians 2. We're born in our iniquity. None of us seek the Lord. None of us seek good, Romans chapter 3. Because of that, sin is not an external problem that can be washed off. Sin's not something that can be fixed with more good works. There is nothing you can do or buy or say externally that can fix the problem of sin because in our very core, we are corrupt before the Lord. As Isaiah 53, 6 says, all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have all gone our wicked way. Because that idea there of iniquity really refers to the fact that God has laid for us a straight path, but we have chosen the crooked path. That the Lord said, here's the way, walk in it. And we say, well, that's good, but I want to walk this way. None of us, like the great theologian Johnny Cash said, have ever walked the line. We have never walked the straight path that the Lord called us to. And the result of that, listen, this is important. As we choose to walk outside of that straight path and onto the crooked path, that crooked path has innumerable consequences that always make life worse. Is it hard to follow Jesus? Absolutely. But is it worse to not follow Jesus? Absolutely. The consequences of walking outside of God's way are absolutely devastating. And so David begins by saying, all of this was in my life. I had all of this. He says, I, I was estranged from God, the broken relationship. I couldn't help but to think this morning that as a pastor, one of the things that comes up the most just in my counseling is those who have an estranged relationship with someone. 
And whether it be a child or a loved one or a distant relative or an old friend, there really is nothing that weighs heavier on our heart, you know this, than an estranged, broken relationship. It may be the most painful thing that we experience because if everything else is falling apart but our relationships are good, we seem okay. But think about this with me. If the pain of a broken relationship in your family or in your life is absolutely devastating, imagine whether you realize it or not, you have an estranged relationship with a God who created you. How is it possible to ever be happy, to ever have joy if you're estranged from the God who created you? David says this is sin and sin, we have broken trust with God, we're estranged and as a result of that, we are broken. Our lives are a mess. And we know it, even if we can't articulate it, we know that there's something broken inside and we do everything we can to try to fix our brokenness. Listen, but when you try to fix your brokenness with anything but Jesus, you just bring more brokenness to your own life. We're estranged, we're broken. And the truth is because this sin is iniquity, we're just miserable without Jesus. After the first service, I came down and there was a man that came and talked to me and He talked about a little bit of his own testimony and the misery that he experienced through years of his life by hiding sin from his family. He said, there's just nothing more miserable in all of life than walking outside of the way of Jesus and hiding sin. And that's exactly what David is saying. He said, you need to know that that we are broken without Christ, that we're headed in a dangerous place and miserable without Christ, that we're estranged from God. And what most of us try to do with our sin is in verse two. Look what it says in that last line. Blessed is the one in whom the Lord counts no iniquity and whose spirit, this is really important, there is no deceit. You see, listen, this is gonna resonate with you. You'll understand this. The reason he ends with this idea of deceit is because what we try to do with our sin is deceive ourselves and others. We may not be able to articulate the problem in my life is sin, which it is, and this is the deep frustration I have with so many churches who gather people every Sunday and give you 10 life principles for a better life and never mention sin. Our problem is sin. Every problem in our life in some way is caused by sin. You don't just need 10 principles for a more abundant life. You need to know the solution to sin. And so it is, he says that as a result of this sin, what we do is we deceive ourselves and others. And and you know how this works because we've all done it. We deceive ourselves by trying to say, well, I know something's wrong, but it's, it's not that. I don't need Jesus. I don't need church. I, I, I need something else. And so we try to tell ourselves that our sin is not that bad or our sin is not the problem. And then we deceive others, meaning that we have things in our heart that we don't want anybody else to know. And we live a lie. We hide sin. But that deceiving never works. Because ultimately, the pain and the misery is going to catch up with us. And that's exactly what David says in verse 3. David says, I tried this. I deceived myself and I deceived others. And look at the result of his deception in verses three and four. Look at that. He said, when I kept silent, kept silent about what? My sin, my bones wasted away. Meaning that sin is so pervasive in our life that if you hide it, it will actually bring physical pain and difficulty to you. Through my groanings all day long, For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. It's exhausting to hide sin. It's miserable to hide sin. But the one phrase I want you to notice is at the beginning of verse four. Look at that carefully. Day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. Meaning this, the God who created you 
and who loves you more than you can comprehend, who knows that the only way for you to experience real life is through him, will put his heavy hand upon you and make you miserable in hopes that you might come and find joy in him. His goal is not your misery. His goal is your joy. But he will often in your sin, and some of you are experiencing this right now, the heavy hand of the Lord oppressive upon us. And that is the heavy hand that comes from a loving heart that just longs for you to know the joy of Jesus Christ. He says, I tried this and it was a miserable way to live because our sin is more painful and worse than we think. But there's another truth because there's another part of David's testimony. So if your sin is worse than you think, the other part of the truth is this. Please write this down. God's forgiveness is greater than you think. Your sin is worse than you think, and God's forgiveness is greater than you think. So look at what David says in verse 5. He said, there was a moment in which I acknowledged my sin to you. I stopped hiding, and I acknowledged. And I don't know what it is. I, I think his own misery... The heavy hand of the Lord brought him to a place where he said, I got I to get open. I got to get clean here. And I did not cover my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And the most surprising thing happened. The Lord forgave his iniquity and his sin, his transgression. So he was hiding all this stuff because he didn't know what was going to happen. And it's scary to say these things that's going on in your heart. But what David has said is, is when I did this, I got forgiveness. I got clean and the heaviness lifted. Now, I want you to go back for a minute and look at verses one and two again. Because there are three words for sin in verses one and two, and there are also three words for forgiveness. Look what it says in verse 32, verse one, chapter 32, one. It says, my transgression is forgiven. That's the first one. My sin is covered. That's the second one. And the Lord does not count my iniquity on me. Now, let's think about those words for a minute. He says, my transgression is forgiven. That word forgiven means that the heaviness is lifted. That God has taken something from us. He's removed something from us. And what is it? Two things. He's removed his heavy hand and he's removed the weight of sin that you're holding. It reminds us of the Pilgrim's Progress. It tells us that at the very beginning, the first chapter there, the first paragraph, John Bunyan says, I fell asleep and I had a dream. I had a dream about a man named Christian who was carrying a heavy burden upon his back. And he opened a book and he began to weep because he did not know what to do with his burden. He carried this burden all the way throughout his life. And then it says that he finally saw a cross upon a hill. And he walked up the hill to the cross. And when he got to the cross, the burden fell off. It rolled down the hill into a sepulcher, into a tomb. And he never saw it again. This is why the songwriter says, my sin, oh, the bliss of that glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, praise the Lord. That all the heaviness that you're feeling is the sin in your life. And the Lord says through Jesus Christ, he takes the heavy hand off and he also takes the burden that you're carrying off and your sins are forgiven. But they're also covered. They're covered. That means that, that they're hidden, that they can't be seen anymore. This word covered is used two other times in the Old Testament. In Genesis 7, it says that when Noah was on the ark, the waters covered the earth. Now, what kind of covering was that? It covered the mountains, it covered the ground. Every single thing on earth was covered. And then it tells us in the book of Exodus that when uh, Moses led the people over to the other side of the Red Sea and Pharaoh came in after them, the waters then closed in and covered Pharaoh and all of them were destroyed. 
In other words, what it says is this, is when you confess your sin to the Lord, he covers it and it's not seen any longer. It's covered, completely covered, not a bit of it, but it's completely covered. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. So Jesus shed his blood that his blood might cover your sins so they're not seen anymore. They're forgiven, they're covered, and they're not counted against you. Look at this. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. It's a word that means charged. It's an accounting term. I want you to think about this with me. Imagine if instead of a Bible, this was a ledger. Look at me. And in this ledger was every sin you'd ever committed. And what if I were to say right now, I have discovered this book and it's about one of you. And I'm not gonna tell you until after I read all of them, but I'm gonna read all of them and then I'm gonna have that person stand up and we're gonna publicly shame them. Some of you are terrified right now. Imagine, imagine for any of us, the most righteous of all of us, imagine if all of our thoughts and intentions and desires were all written down in a book and someone had it. Someone does have it. The Lord has it. There is a ledger in which all of our sins and transgressions have all been listed. But imagine this. Imagine that moment in which you're absolutely terrified at all the things that are here and terrified that anybody's going to know. Imagine that through trusting Jesus Christ, you open up the book, a little bit shaky as to what's gonna be there, and when you open it up, all it says is one word, righteous. You say, well, what happened to, what happened to all of the stuff? And the answer is this, 2 Corinthians 5 says, when God forgives you, this is so important. It's not just he wipes away your sin. This is what we think. Well, God wiped away my sin. No, he didn't. What he did is he took all of your sin and he put it on Jesus Christ. Your sins weren't just taken away. Jesus died and carried the weight of every sin you've ever committed. And on the cross, he took upon himself everything that was in your ledger so you might get what was in his ledger, which is nothing but righteousness. That's the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But the heaviness of the strange relationship is, is renewed and we're right with God. And every sin that you've ever committed covered by the blood of Jesus Christ and by faith, you get his righteousness credited to your ledger. No wonder David's happy. He's saying what a joy it is to know that all of my sins have been covered by the Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I acknowledged it in verse five. I didn't cover it any longer. I got real. I got clean before God and others. I stopped hiding and it was painful. But when I did, I began to experience the joy of knowing what it's like to live an honest life in relationship to God and others. So David gives this testimony and then he ends by pleading with us to respond like he did. Look at these last verses as we go through them quickly. It says there in verse six, therefore, if this is true, <laughs> if it's true that it's possible for all of our sins to be covered, to not counted against us, to be completely forgiven, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at the time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will, console, I will counsel you with an eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with a, burnt, a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. So be glad and rejoice in the Lord, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. I was about to say if David were here and he could exhort you, 
But the reality is, is the word of God is here and it's giving you two exhortations. The first one is this, confess immediately. Right now, what a word picture he gives here. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. Meaning there's all kinds of people who say, well, I'll wait, I'll wait. And you wait to confess and you come to a tragic moment in your life in which now you realize, and he says, it is possible, it is very possible that you've rejected the Lord too many times and all of a sudden there's no one there for you. That it could be that at that moment in which you say, well, I'm ready, I'm ready. No, no, no. No, you've continued to reject the Lord. Your heart has been hardened. So he says, now, if you hear his voice, today, if you hear his voice, voice do not harden your heart. Right now, confess. And then he says this, don't be like a horse or a mule who can only be led in the right direction by something that is pulling them in their life. Don't be so stubborn and proud that you will not get right with God. Humble yourself because God gives grace to the humble. The only thing that would keep you from confession of sin before God and others is pride. Don't be like that. Come to understand the forgiveness of the Lord. He says you need to confess that sin. You know what confess means? Confess means to agree with God. It means you're not deceiving yourself any longer. You're saying, God, you say that I'm as bad as you say that I am. And you know what? I agree with you. I'm a mess. My sin is a mess. I'm miserable. And so God, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ alone as the payment for my sins. I'm asking you to save me. You promised that anyone that calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So right now I'm trusting what you've done for me, knowing I can't fix it myself. I'm asking you to save me. We have to do that in order to be saved. And you know what? Even as a believer, We've got to keep asking the Lord to, to cleanse us. If we confess our sins, John 1, 9, he's faithful and just to forgive us because we tend to keep hiding and the Lord continues to forgive. But he says, confess immediately. And then the last thing he says is this, is to rejoice loudly. Rejoice loudly. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. The reason I had to begin with how bad your sin is is because if you don't realize how bad your sin is and how eternal the consequences are, and if you don't realize that everything in your life that's bad is a result of sin, then you will never come to rejoice in the goodness of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. The reason we don't have more excitement about Jesus is because we don't think sin is our biggest problem. But if sin is your biggest problem and Jesus has fully met it through his death on the cross, there is a reason to rejoice. One of the first things I did when I became pastor, I walked in here on a Sunday morning and the, the lights were like at 40%. I remember going back there and saying, what, what, 40, I said 100%. I want it as bright as it can be in here. I want church to be happy. I want it to be bright. I want us to sing songs of joy. Why? Because I want every person that walks in here to be reminded of the joy that is found in Jesus Christ. I want you to sense a little taste of heaven here that it is good to be saved. And some of you are not quite convincing that it is good to be saved. I'm just looking at your faces and your expressions and I'm wondering if you love Jesus and if you're thankful to be a believer and you're thankful that you were saved from eternal damnation through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross, that is worthy of our rejoicing. And so as long as God gives me breath, I will continue to remind you how bad your sin is and how good Jesus is because there's nothing that will bring you joy like Jesus. So get right with Jesus today. Confess to God. Confess to others, call upon the name of the Lord and begin on that pathway, not only of knowing and walking with Jesus, but of the joy that only he can give. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes this morning.